welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to Great Shot Kid, the Nerd Party's podcast that focuses on the artistic and thematic and technical aspects of the Star Wars galaxy. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And this week, we are going to be delving into uh, the second part of our comparison of Ron Howard with uh, Miller and Lord, uh, the the replacement for the Han Solo movie and uh, his forebears. So uh, before we get started, of course, I want to mention we're here on the nerdparty.com and you can go ahead and go to nerdparty.com slash contact and you can reach out to us that way. You can reach out to us on Twitter using the network Twitter handle at join nerd party. You can find us on Facebook, of course, at facebook.com slash the nerd party. And we're the nerd party on Instagram. Please use the hashtag great shot kid. So with all of that said, I want to go ahead and I want to jump right into this. I want to ask which one you want to talk about first. We're looking at Apollo 13, which is definitely in the conversation as Ron Howard's best film. And 22 Jump Street which is definitely in the conversation as Miller and Lord's best film. Yes. So we, we, we've got Battle of the Titans here uh, going on. The best examples of their work. Which one do you want to talk about first? I would say let's do 22 Jump Street first because, you know, this movie, we'll see how 22 Jump Street morphs into Apollo 13 or something along those lines. I think that's an extremely interesting challenge. Um, yeah, okay. You had seen 22 Jump Street. I had not. Yeah, uh, I saw 21 Jump Street for the first time for last week's show, and then I watched 22 Jump Street. And you had said it's next level. It, it ups its game big time. And I can report back and say you're absolutely correct. This yep. is one of the funniest movies I've seen since stuff like Airplane or Real Genius uh, or Naked Gun. Like th- this, is, this is something where I will go back to it and laugh just as hard the second time. Um. But I want to get your perspective first on what is it that changed between 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street? What do you think took it up to this next level? I think just the idea that they realized how ridiculous it is for them to even make this movie in the first place. I mean, 21 Jump Street was a ridiculous idea. But then when it worked, the idea, of course, you need to make a sequel, right? And then the question becomes, how do you make a sequel to this? And what are these sequels and everything? And I think the route that they went, which was basically just calling themselves out and basically making the movie extremely meta and all about how it is a sequel and how, you know, the first one made a lot of money, so now they need to do just the same thing again, literally. You know, that adds to a lot of, uh, you know, humor. And it also really sort of makes you think about, you know, franchises and sequels and, you know, what it is that's popular and what it is that's not and why and all that good stuff. And I just find it to be absolutely hilarious. In addition to, like, a lot of just, you know, like in the first movie, just the kind of, like, you know, straight-up humor that comes from the narrative and everything I, I i don't know i think it really really works well i agree with you i think all of those are val- very valid comments uh very valid observations with what make what took it to the next level um i i i definitely tune in right in on that i would add 
on there that watching 21 Jump Street, you know, as we discussed last week, my reaction was, well, gosh, why, why doesn't Lucasfilm want something a little different, a little looser like this? And then I see 22 Jump Street and I wonder, I ponder with that meta commentary that they're obviously very adept at making, had that started to sneak into Han Solo and was that what scared Lucasfilm off? Because I look at, you know, that I mean, they're essentially saying with 22 Jump Street, what people are saying about Star Wars becoming a franchise, you know, just like a big machine franchise as opposed to a single filmmaker franchise, which is, oh, you're just making these for money. You're just churning these out every year. This isn't as, spe-, you know, there is that commentary that's going on. And I can watch 22 Jump Street and think to myself, they might have been working that in. And that might have been, you know, like they might have been told, hey, guys, tamp it down. Don't you know, you don't want to go this way. And then they come out and they're like, come on, this is so funny. And, you know, just realizing that it's just in their DNA. They couldn't get away from it, uh, as it were. That that could be. I don't know. You know, like some of the reports which have come out have said, like, there's been a lot of improvisation, but not improvisational comedy you know like they're they're sort of making it up as they go uh, in terms of the star wars you know movie but not in a not not like in in a joking way you know what i mean and i mean i i don't know like i can see that like i don't i'm super curious to see how that manifests itself you know in in a you know basically non-comedy movie if you want to call it that but I don't know. I mean, like, I'm sure. I'm sure that that there's some of that going on. There has to be because I mean, that's really what this movie is. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'd be curious to see. I'm well, sure. I mean, the thing, the the thing is though, with that whole you know improvisational thing, that actually, you know, as as I think about that, that actually speaks a lot to the way Lucas made the first Star Wars. That is a movie that. You know, we, we've talked about on the show that people have talked to death how it was made in the editing room. And that continued. There was so much stuff on the cutting room floor for, uh, you know, the prequels as well. Well, episodes two and three, at least, where Lucas has always said that his his philosophy is like, so long as I got stuff set up, even if it's not in the script, you know what? You know, we've got the camera set up. We've got the actor here. I got this idea. Let's shoot this, too. And there was, I don't know if you recall uh, the report, it was, I think, back when a Star Wars Insider magazine um, was still, you know, the, the primary source of information or whatever. But there was somebody who went and found, quote unquote, the lost cut of Star Wars, the first one that had a lot more improvisational stuff. And he even pointed out points where you could see some of the comedy and some of the the more improvisational stuff making it into the final cut of the film. Uh, and I'll, I'll direct it. If, if there's somebody who out there in the audience who doesn't know, the shot as they're walking up and they look into the docking bay and they say, you know, you came in that thing, you're braver than I thought. Nice, come on. At the very beginning of that shot, you'll notice Han Solo is carrying his gun behind his back like he's trying to hide it and looking over his shoulder. And it's, it, there's a wipe, it's a very quick cut, and you have to really look for it. Apparently, in the previous cut, that was because they had made a joke about them, uh, a joke out of them sneaking around this giant installation where Han was, you know, twiddling his thumbs and looking up in the air and whistling and stuff like that. So, I don't know. I mean, like, if anything, that improvisational comment becomes even more strange because that is, in fact, 
Like, why, why couldn't you just bring in an editor and say, okay, great, indulge it, and then our editor is going to help you pare that down to what we want? Yeah, I, I remember that article. I think it was in the Star Wars Insider. Um, and the thing, I mean, just to, to kind of add to, to what that, that cut was, was that was like the assembly cut of the movie, for, from, right. from what I understand, which I, I think people have like kind of a misconception of what those things are. Like there's this one movie journalist who is uh, every time he, he he interviews a director he always asks this is his go-to question it's you know how long was the first cut of the movie and the directors are usually like uh three hours you know and then you know the headline is they cut an hour out of this movie you know it's like one of those things and like i i think as, as they as they say in that article like you know the the goal of an assembly cut more than anything is to basically show the filmmakers everything that they have you know so like it's i don't think that it was the type of thing where you know probably when the editor was was cutting that that movie and they stuck the the like the whistling scene in there or whatever it was they were probably like this is never going to make it into the movie you know whatever but i need to show lucas what what he has so that he in case there is something there he can you know chop it out but um you know it does certainly demonstrate the fact that yeah lucas was willing to sort of come up with this stuff on the set i mean the other thing that people always bring up is uh especially in relation to to the han solo movie someone was referencing like you know, what's the most famous line from Empire yes. Strikes Back? You know, I love you, I know. And that was a sign, a, a line which was essentially improvised. You know, it wasn't in the script. And yeah, it, it, it was improvised because uh, Harrison Ford and Irvin Kershner both said this doesn't feel right for him. And it had been a long day. Mm-hmm. And Harrison Ford was like, I'll just come up, just, just roll, just roll. I got this, I got this. You know, and it was, uh, actually, if you go back to, I don't know if they make reference in the making of The Empire Strikes Back um, that Rinsler put together, but one of the source books for that was uh, 20th Century Fox unit publicist, Alan Arnold, uh, wrote a book called uh, Once Upon a Galaxy. I actually have a paper book, paperback copy that I found years ago. Um, that actually upset Carrie Fisher on set, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Because she didn't, she didn't know that was going to happen. And it, she was like, "Hey, hey, clue me in, guys." That that book, and yeah, I I think this is the most amazing thing ever. I I love that book for more than anything else. There's one chapter in there, which was the day that they shot that scene where they put a mic on Irving Kirshner and basically have a transcript of everything that happened on the day, and I mean. That to me just completely blows my mind that we have like a blow by blow, you know, first person narrative of the creation of one of the best scenes in movie history, you know? Yeah. And in that, in that, uh, that, that chapter, you see, you, you can read Kirshner and Ford in i think ford's dressing room discussing the line and what they're going to do and then you know you can see them like actually work it out 
so that they can get to the point where you know they say i love you i know you know and and then everything everything with the lighting and everything like that it's it's astounding but you can actually witness how this thing came to be how this line came to be on a step-by-step basis and 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 an added additional uh interesting note with that too is that that's an improv scene that comes up Kirshner was a champion of it and he said you got to do this you got to do this this is going to work this is going to work and Lucas was highly skeptical and said no it's not I want to go back to the line I want to go back to the line and then they had a test screening and the audience went nuts for it and Lucas at least looked at Kirshner and said okay you won you're right and so it's like it's it's one of those things where how big a crowd did they give it to? Is it that their improv and the way that they were going didn't work? Is it that they were made nervous? Or, you know, like, why not just give them a chance and then, you know, again, fix it in the editing bay if you need to? I wonder, I mean, this is something which, you know, John Carpenter talks about on the commentary for Vampires, his masterpiece, uh, in which... (laughs) It's not his masterpiece, but I have warmed to it of late, thanks to you. (laughs) He talks about, because there was a lot of improv in that movie, and he said that sort of the policy on the set, which which they set forward, was do the scene as scripted, and then after they get everything that they need, you know, as was planned, he would then reset and let the actors do whatever the heck they wanted to. And the the result was, you know, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that didn't work, but there are a number of key scenes where they they actually use what the director or I'm sorry, but there are a number of key scenes where they use what the actors came up with on the set because you know it it ended up being the the superior thing. And I'm wondering if Lord and Miller maybe we're kind of used to working in a system which sort of allowed them to kind of make their own decisions on the set. And if they felt really strongly about this improvisation, they just wouldn't bother shooting what was scripted. Right. There's a difference between Kirshner at least shot what was on the script and then improvised. Is it that they improvised and said, we don't need that? And so, yeah, that does that would make sense for Lucasfilm to balk at that. Mm -hmm. And and Kasner, Kasdan as well uh, to, you know, (laughs) uh, maybe go a little Max Fisher about it. It's my script. Don't change it. Yeah. So a little Rushmore reference for anybody who who doesn't know who Max Fisher is. But (laughs) if you haven't seen Rushmore, you need to. But um, yeah, so let, let's then shift over to Apollo 13, which was an Oscar nominated for Best Picture film, had a lot of Oscar nominations for, uh, for acting, uh, technical stuff. All, you know, Apollo 13 was really Ron Howard arriving as a major filmmaker in a lot of ways because this was his, like, I, I feel, I will always feel bad for Ron Howard because I think that he was in a a situation where there were so many fantastic films in contention for best picture that year that he was doomed like any other year Apollo 13 wins but because of its competition it gets sunk and I, I like because that was that was one of those years with uh with, with the Academy Awards where I remember my friends and I just saying there's there's no 
there's no like real loser here and there's no real winner because all of these actually deserved it. And um, so, you know, you know the, there, there's that. But Apollo 13 is definitely a very different vibe from uh, 22 Jump Street. I think with what we've been talking about with the improvisation, coming back and seeing it this time, what I see with Apollo 13 is a director who, and this borrow, this will borrow a phrase from how, the way you refer to Jonathan Frakes, somebody who took a script and directed the hell out of it and said, this is the story that I have and this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to just max it out and make it fantastic. And um, so, I mean, in, in light of that, you know, I, I, like when you hold this up against 22 Jump Street, do you see the same sort of thing or do you see a similar sort of energy? What What do you see that's, uh, that sets this out? No, yeah, I pretty much agree with what you're saying. I think like 22 Jump Street, you know, they had like a very solid premise and they kind of like found the movie, you know, over the course of the production. Whereas with Apollo 13, I feel like, you know, they had everything pretty well locked down uh, prior to filming and then what you know every shot every line of dialogue everything feels like a very deliberate and necessary piece of the puzzle you know in order to construct this this movie and it is an incredibly distinct style and I mean that's something which I think it was Scott Weinberg said this on Twitter a film critic he's like if you hired Lord and Miller to make your movie and you didn't like the, what they were doing. So then you hired Ron Howard to replace them. That suggests that you have no idea what kind of movie you're trying to make <laughs> because they really are completely different, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum in, in that regard. And, you know, I wonder if, their thinking was like, Lord and Miller bring something to the table which really we've never seen in Star Wars before. And we've got a solid script and anyone can make this into a good movie. But if we get these guys to come in and do this, maybe they can make it even better. And the result was, you know, catastrophic failure in the minds of, of Lucasfilm, at which point they were like, let's just retreat to like an extremely safe option where we know exactly what we're going to get. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I do. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's funny because like, it always feels like what, you know, these last two weeks, it almost feels like we're giving, you know, uh, backhanded compliments to Howard. But I think, I think that it's so important, especially if somebody hasn't seen Apollo 13, you really need to, because this is like the, this is his calling card. This and Cinderella Man are hands down the best things that he's probably ever going to do as a filmmaker. And that doesn't mean that he's not going to produce something good down the road. But I think that it very much speaks to what he's capable of doing when he when he really feels on his game. I also think that the the way he handles Apollo thirteen and the way that he gets you know so much out of everything. And the way that you even feel like you're in space, like you, the thing that really struck me about it this time, and I remember feeling this way the first time I saw it, but seeing it at home even, is getting so drawn into it and buying into the premise so much. 
that even though I knew how the story was going to end, I also was invested. I was also tense. I was also, uh, you know, willing to suspend all of my knowledge and come into this and believe what was going on and feel scared for the characters and feel like there was a sense of danger and there was a sense of suspense uh, that that I totally went along with. And it, so, uh, you know, like it, it's just it's I just think it's important not to take any of this discussion as being dismissive toward Howard a, as a director, you know, and I think also paying attention to because we watched the paper last time. And we watched uh, Apollo 13 this time. And I'd had the question with you about, oh, well, you know, they're keeping the cinematographer. They're keeping this person. Oh, he's just coming on and he's plugging in. Well, that with Apollo 13, it's a different crew in, in a lot of regards. But you still get a great movie. And so I think that that speaks to what the type of director that Howard is, which is probably what a big budget franchise type of thing really does need, which is a manager, somebody who can recognize it and say, I'm not here to force you to do it my way. It, I'm here. You've got your skill set. I'm going to get the best out of you by interacting with you. And so like I, I almost, you know, to, just to add a, another layer to it, is it possible that Lord and Miller were fighting what other people on the set were trying to do to say, no, do it our way? complete speculation. I've read nothing like that. I'm just trying to look into the situation. I'm not saying this is the case, but is it possible that there's a conflict there? Because, you know, they of course leaked the story naturally that people applauded when they heard that Ron Howard was coming on set. And I was, I was rather dismissive. I was like, well, of course, you know, Ron Howard's directing your movie. You know, Hey, at the very least, you're going to be like, yes, my boss is like this. And so I'm going to applaud. But at the same time, does that story, Maybe there was some, you know, back and forth on the set where they were trying to force people to do what they didn't want to do, like the cinematographer or something. I kind of doubt that because I feel like, you know, when you're encouraging improvisation and that sort of thing, you're basically saying that you want everyone's input, right? I mean, I don't know. I I, I don't feel like that was the case. I think maybe that was the case with you know, the studio, the higher ups, you know, that sort of thing. Like maybe they were saying, hey, guys, can you do it like this for us, please? And they're like, no, no, we're doing it our own way. But on the set, I feel like, you know, with the people sort of beneath them, they probably had a good relationship if they were doing things like improv. That would just be my guess. Again, I don't know. But it just seems to me that like improvisation in general is encourages collaboration encourages input from everyone involved and uh obviously if someone's asking you what you think and asking you you know how you would do something then that's going to make them i think happy i mean maybe there was a case where it it felt directionless you know maybe there were some people on set who were like i don't know what to do because you're not telling me what to give you i mean that could be uh you know an obvious uh you know, side effect of that. But I don't know. I've just, again, I don't know anything, um, you know, about what happened, you know, specifically, but my guess would be that that wasn't the case. But in regards okay, to, sure. in regards to Ron Howard, you know, and, you know, not being dismissive of Ron Howard, like, yeah, I don't want to come across as dismissive of Ron Howard either, because he's clearly the, 
a better director than Lord and Miller. I think maybe Lord and Miller um, could create a better movie given the right circumstances, maybe in this case, you know, as well. But Ron Howard is certainly the better director as, you know, evidenced by Apollo 13, which is a masterpiece. And it's really kind of weird. Like, you know, I mean, I saw it in the theater, you know, and I I loved it, you know, got the laser disc and everything and um, watched it, you know, numerous times. But it's one of those movies where, for whatever reason, I just kind of took it for granted. And, you know, it's not something which is in heavy rotation. But every time I come back to it, for whatever reason, as soon as I start watching it, I'm immediately sucked in. And when I get to the end of it, I'm like, why is this not in the conversation? You know, there's there's your touchstones like Raiders of the Lost Ark and, you know, Boogie Nights and Die Hard and Alien and all these movies where you're just like, of course, that's one of the best movies ever made, you know, but Apollo 13 has never been that for me. And every time I watch it, I think, why isn't it? Like, why do I not put this on the same pedestal that I put Back to the Future or, you know, The Big Lebowski or anything like that? I think it gets back to the fact that it was released in an extremely strong year. It was up against Pulp Fiction at the Oscars, if I recall. No, it was the it lost to Braveheart, I think. It, OK, well, yeah, I mean, Braveheart sort of sucked all of the <laughs> Braveheart sucked all of the wind out of the room for everybody else like Braveheart you know, uh, conquered the Oscars, as it were. And um, so I, I, I do think that it, uh, it, it's one of those things where it just got lost in the shuffle, uh, as it were, as things went forward. But I think also is it's not a, um, it's, it's not a genre-shaking sort of movie. It's not a slap-you-in-the-face sort of movie. It's simply an incredibly well-made, and I agree with you, masterpiece. And the thing is, that doesn't stick in the memory as much because Back to the Future, when that came out, caught people off guard, you know, and it was like, oh my gosh, and time travel and all of these interesting questions that it's asking about all of that stuff. And you got the zany Christopher Lloyd character and Michael J. Fox at the apex of his career and the whole thing gets to act as a time capsule of the 1980s while you know, being a nostalgia trip for the 1950s. So it speaks to two different generations at the same time. And now it's become, you know, double nostalgic like Greece was and stuff like that. Uh, but Apollo 13 doesn't really, I mean, Apollo 13 is a nostalgia trip for the space program, but you know, maybe because the space program has been dead for so long that it doesn't get mentioned as much, you know, like I mean, because when was the last time a shuttle went up? You know, does anybody even remember? I mean, every, everything's just communication satellites now yeah. and probably secret uh, government mind control programs. But we're not supposed to talk about those. Uh, <laughs> did, I don't I, think. did I ever tell you about the time I met Jim Lovell? No, I would love to hear about it. <laughs> my my grandfather uh, walked the Appalachian Trail a couple of times which is from Georgia to Maine, for those people who don't know, through the He mountains. walked the whole thing? The whole thing, yeah. Wow. Twice. That That is a huge accomplishment, Mike. That's yes. amazing. Yeah, and he was like 65 years old when he did it, too, which is wow. crazy. But regardless of any of that, older than that, it doesn't matter. Regardless of any of that, um, when he walked it, you know, you would meet people along the way or whatever. It takes like th- three months to do or whatever it is. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, he... 
one of the people who he met and hiked with for a good portion of the time was Jim Lovell's son. The little kid at the academy, you know, the the one oh, who's yeah, like, yeah. You know, watching, away. watching with rapt attention with the rest of the nation. Right. That yeah. that kid, my, my, my grandfather walked the Appalachian Trail with him and they became friends and they stayed in touch and everything like that. And he's now a gourmet chef who owns an extremely, you know, upscale restaurant in the Chicago suburbs. And the whole place is like sort of like a, a tribute to his dad in a lot of ways like there's like this massive mural which is painted like behind the the entrance you know when you come in which is like a sort of um very artistic stylized version of the patch that they they wore on on the the, the mission and like cool. in in the in the basement area they've got like a basically like a museum with all this sorts of you know like um you know artifacts like moon rocks and stuff like that but anyway so we we went there because my grandfather wanted to see his his friend and everything and he's you know the guy who who owns it and everything so we went to this this restaurant and um we're, we're sitting there and at one point you know we the, the, these like three people come in like an older couple and then a, a a woman who's, you know, probably in her like fifties or something like that. And we're like, is that, you know, and like, they were just kind of like in a table off to the side and it was Jim Lovell and his family who were just there because he's got an office upstairs or whatever. And he's, he was in town for whatever reason. And they were literally just having dinner off to the side there. And we're, you know, like my sister and I are like freaking out. Like, that's the guy. That's it. That's him. That's Tom Hanks. It's Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like my sister's like, you know, kind of like, you know, listen, as they're talking about some completely boring, like domestic, whatever, you know, and she's just like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. They're just like real people. <laughs> <laughs> so at one Astronauts are people, too. <laughs> <laughs> so at one point, you know, the the waiter or whoever who knew, you know, sort of that, you know, my my you know who who my my grandfather was in relation or whatever, he went up to to Lovell and he's like, "Hey, you know, would you mind going over and saying hi to this table or whatever?" So he came over and he shook all of our hands and you know talked to us for a few minutes and everything. Really really nice guy, you know, and um it was it was definitely a a, a highlight for me because how often That's do you so get cool. to meet an astronaut, let alone, you know, I would say probably more than any other astronaut, I know more about this guy uh, yeah. because of this movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I, that is that is a really cool story, man. That, yeah. is, that, is, that restaurant still exists in Chicago, yeah? It's called Lovells of Lake Forest. It's a steakhouse. Lovells of Lake Forest. Yes, it's okay. a steakhouse. Yeah. Ooh. All right. Well, I'm... I did. I'm disappointed that uh, the many trips that I took to Chicago for for work over the years, I never got a chance to go there and didn't even know of its existence. So, I uh, I I would love to to check it out. But uh, on top of that, that is that's a great story. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Um. So okay. Uh. You know, just to to wrap it up, then I think both of these are films well worth seeing uh, for di- completely different reasons. Um. I. Th- and I don't know why, but you know, there have always 
we've had the discussions. Everybody's had these discussions about who gets the director credit. Is it going to be a split director? Blah, blah, blah. I think that Apollo 13 answers hands down. It's going to be Ron Howard's credit at the end of this. I think that, I think that they're going to say thanks for assembling this stuff and, and everything, but uh, he's going to reshoot a ton of things and make it, you know, the, the, these aren't normal pickups. I think that is very much the case. The fact that it's still going on after all this time is like, wow, yeah, he really is. Did you see the picture that he posted the other day that has the internet going crazy? It's... No, I saw the one where he showed the, the smoking speeder, uh, where he he had the... It was a video, actually. It was a, I don't know, 10-second video or something. And uh, I want to give credit to, I think it was uh, Tristan Riddell, co-host of Nerd Nuptial here on um, the Nerd Party, who uh, commented, well, you'd think he'd uh, put it in landscape instead of portrait mode on his phone. Oh, that was me. That was me. Oh, that was you. That was you. I'm sorry. I misattributed that actually belonged to you at Mumbles3K (laughs) on Twitter. Um, I just, here, check your phone. I just sent you the picture. Okay. Okay. Hang on. I, I this is this is a live reaction, folks, as to uh, the picture that he sent. Oh, neat. What? So people are like, "Is it the Death Star? Is it the what? that is definitely a what was once referred to in the action figures as a uh, Death Squad Commander helmet, and that is." You know what? I'm going to go on a reach here. It is not the Death Star. No, definitely not the Death Star. I don't think it's this the Death is a Star. cell bay. A cell bay? Okay. This is, I'm willing yeah. to bet that this is a cell bay. Cause yeah. it, it, because it looks like, I think that's, uh, yeah, it looks like from that scene in, in A New Hope, you know? Yeah, the, the, control, the control panels are definitely, you know, Imperial and everything, but I think that looking in the background, you don't see the, um, the, the typical lighting scheme in the walls mm-hmm. uh, that Gil Taylor contributed for us. But, um, oh, and are those people over on the... Oh, we'll have to share this photo. Maybe this will be the photo for our show, but it looks like there are people standing off in the background on the left-hand side. Yeah. They Those look like heads. crew members, whatever, doing their thing. <laughs> you think you're taking a picture? No, we're fine. Let's just <laughs> grab a smoke break. That's cool. <laughs> no, that's, uh, you know, I and I do have to give him a lot of credit for he is definitely having fun with this and definitely, you know, aware that people are, are really tuned into it and he is... Um, you know, he is sharing some cool stuff. I got to make a point that his stuff gets seen first, or I got to monkey around with the algorithm or whatever. <laughs> but, um, you know, in case you missed it, and then it's like, you know, 16 hot takes on the latest Marvel movie or something. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. good, guys. I'm good. I care about this more. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's our discussion of 22 Jump Street and Apollo 13. Um, Mike, if they want to interact with you online or listen to you elsewhere on other topics, where can they find you? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com doing Commentary Trackstars, and you can find me on uh, the Nerd... I'm sorry. And you can find me on TalkFilmSociety.com doing a show called Soderbergh2828. Uh, well, our, our last episode comes out on Monday. And then you can find me on Trek.fm doing a show called The Edge, and another show called Stage 9 with you. Yes, you do Stage 9 with me over on Trek FM, which is the same concept as Great Shot Kid, but for Star Trek creators. Uh, you can double back here to the Nerd Party and listen to me on Aggressive Negotiations with Matthew Rushing, uh, where we go a little bit uh, 
off the rails with the the philosophical discussions of the Star Wars galaxy. And I'm co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig, uh, which is a free-floating platform of insanity out there. And if you want to track me down online, you can just look for Kessel Junkie. So with all that, we've enjoyed uh, comparing and contrasting. And uh, I can say that I'm after Apollo 13, I'm really looking forward even more to what Ron Howard's going to bring to the table for the Han Solo movie. But in the meantime, if you want to prepare for next week, we're going to be looking at costume design and how it's changed with the different phases of the Star Wars franchise. <laughs> 